the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Can we live our lives more fully, knowing someday we will die? Barbara Becker, an ordained interfaith chaplain and human rights activist, tested the ancient wisdom of living with the end in mind by allowing death to become her teacher. She joins us today to discuss how we can explore our curiosity and learn to live life to the fullest. Barbara is the author of the book, Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much for joining us. It is such a pleasure to be with you, Joan. So, Barbara, this topic of thinking about our death, you know, being mindful of our mortality can be frightening for many people. What made you begin the quest of answering the question, can thinking about death make us live our lives more fully? This journey really began for me when my earliest childhood friend, Marissa, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Um, She was just 30 years old, and I observed in the last year of her life how beautifully she actually lived. It was extraordinary to me. And she married her college sweetheart. She, between chemo treatments, took a trip to Italy with her family, which was their homeland. Um, And she just lived with intention, spending time with with dear friends and her cats. And in the meantime, I was an anxious mess. Um, I was worried about Marissa. I thought about my own mortality. And I was worried about my parents, who I still had at that time. So I did what I usually do when I'm faced with a big question, which is I start reading everything about it. And I discovered that wise people throughout time, from the Buddha to the Stoic philosophers like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca to Henry David Thoreau, they've all implored us to live as if we're going to die, to live with the end in mind rather than running away from our mortality. Mm-hmm. And I started to take that on in my life and discovered that it is really transformational to live that way. When we are facing our mortality, when we have a diagnosis similar to Marissa's, how do you think she was able to make those life changes? Because many of us may shut down and spend that time in fear. I think what happens for Marissa and what happens for so many people is that when their future story is taken away from them because they're not going to live much longer, they realize that the only place to truly be is in the present. And that is not necessarily a beautiful place to end up. Like It's a quick and painful discovery that we are going to die oftentimes. But when people have the opportunity to settle into it 
And when they're given a lot of support and they're given the gift of people who are present to their experience rather than trying to change it or brush it under the rug, um, beautiful things happen. And people really start living in a way that is more full than they say they have ever lived before. Yeah, and I I would have to agree because I remember when I was younger, you know, you don't give a whole lot of thought to the end of your life. You just think you're going to live forever. And it really doesn't cross your mind that you may not have a lot of time left. But now that I'm getting older, you do start to appreciate things more. You take everything with such, you know, you look at it with such a sense of gratitude and awe because you have more time behind you than ahead of you. And I, and I really do think it does transform the way that you end up living your life. Yes. You know, while I was doing research for the book, I came across a commencement speech by Steve Jobs from Apple. And he was dying an early death of cancer. And he actually said that death is the single best invention of life because it's life's change agent. He he meant that it really does have the power uh, to put our priorities in perspective. It is a good way to live your life without having the diagnosis, you know, and, and I agree with your work because when we can start to take everything that we do with such, and I keep using the word awe because that's what life really is, when we can see life with this just beautiful um, journey that's laid out for us. I, I really do think it changes everything. And that's what I've tried to do for the past decade or so. I went through a lot of trauma and a lot of loss, and I wasn't really seeing anything beautiful in my life before then. And it really took being brought to my knees to start to appreciate everything that I have and everything that I do. When I graduated from college, I went and taught English in Japan for a couple of years, and I learned something there that has really stuck with me, which is an ancient form of repairing broken, valuable pottery. Mm -hmm. So when a piece of pottery breaks, what we usually try to do is to glue it so that you can never see the cracks. But what they did in Japan was they put gold into the bonding so that it emphasized the cracks. It's called kintsugi. And what I love so much about it is that those cracks in life, the place where we are at our knees, as you said, are the places of our uniqueness and the places where we have so much wisdom and depth if we just tap into it. I learned about that early on in my transition, Barbara, because I was trying to put the pieces back together exactly the way they were, and you can't do that. And I did learn that sometimes when you put the pieces back together, they can be put back together more beautifully. And that is a really important lesson, and I'm so glad you brought that up. It sure is. There is so much magic in art and also, I think, in metaphor. You know, we find all of these beautiful examples from being out in nature. You know, we, uh, Henry David Thoreau said that the autumn leaves, they teach us how to die. And Heartwood itself is a metaphor that I discovered in nature that helped me so much. Why do you think so many of those teachers knew about this back then? Why do you think that this was so important in their teachings? Well, in the case of Buddhism, which I really became attracted to during the course of really looking at loss in my life, um, monks were actually sent out to what was called charnel grounds to sit with bodies that were decomposing or were being consumed by vultures and wild animals. And the idea was that they were to look at this and to say, you know, this will happen to me too someday. Like I am of the nature to grow old, to become ill and to die. And I think back in those days, 
there was much more presence of death in contrast to what we do here um, in, you know in the United States where where I live um, we put bodies under like heavy makeup if we're going to even show them we we put our elderly in homes um, you know I know that sometimes that's the absolute best circumstance for a family um, but uh, death is far away from us and we've lost something Mm -hmm. in pushing it aside. I interviewed a number of years ago a hospice nurse who had written a book about the process of dying and I remember her telling me we sterilize death we like you're saying we have removed it where years ago it was part of life people died in the home with the family around them and it was a beautiful process in the scope of our lives and and you've worked as well with hospice patients is that something that you've learned from doing that work as well yes i um after marissa passed away i went to two Zen monks in New York City and um, became a student of theirs. They taught me how to be with hospice patients, how to be a compassionate presence at the bedside for people who are dying and for their family members. The thing about hospice is that you um, enter hospice if you have six months or less to live and you have agreed to not continue um, radical medical treatment. So people know that they are dying and there's a level of acceptance inherent in the very idea of hospice that allows um, for these conversations about looking back over one's life, doing a life review, Um, And also talking about your legacy. What do you want to leave behind for your family members? It's also a time to um, seek forgiveness and to look at places where you might be grieving or in pain in your life. And uh, it can be a a wildly rich um, time in a person's life. Do you think that that's a, that piece, that that's a grace that's given to us while we're going through the dying process? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it is so hard to go through the dying process. I mean, there is, there is no um, brushing over that. It's a, a time of pain and of exhaustion. And while hospice is incredibly beautiful and there are many grace-filled moments, and I write about so many of them in Heartwood, I also feel that we do better in our dying process when we start thinking about our mortality even before we learn that we're going to die. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, a new movement called the Death Acceptance Movement, um, where people are, are really gathering in conversation with others. There are, there's something called the Death Cafe, which is in over 80 countries around the world now, where strangers find out about meetings and they go and they have a cup of tea and some cake, because this came from England, and they, without an agenda, just Talk about death, anything they're thinking about, like what happens after we die, as in curious, um, or, you know, I'm afraid of this, or this happened when my aunt was dying. And I think the more that we take a risk and are vulnerable well before our final days, um, it just serves us really well when the time comes. And Barbara, this conversation became very personal for you. It wasn't just about your book because you were recently diagnosed with breast cancer. How has writing this book helped you with that journey? So I was actually having surgery for a brand new diagnosis of breast cancer on the very day that Heartwood came out. I mean, it felt like the ultimate where the rubber meets the road moment and um, what happened for me was was that when the doctor told me that I had breast cancer, instead of thinking, why me? 
I really, and it was the result of doing all of this writing and exploring, I really thought, why not me? I mean, this this happens to absolutely everyone. Um, and at that face of mortality or, or they're, you know, in an accident, but there's some, there's some moment when you realize that you too are going to die. Fortunately for me, this was an early diagnosis and the prognosis is really good. But what it's, what's happened is that, um, I've turned to what the Taoists say is the world of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. I mean, we in our culture are so bent to look for the positive side of things, you know, look for the silver lining and, and to, you know, focus on our youth and the things that bring us joy. And that is wonderful. But we also have to look at the part where there are 10,000 sorrows as well and to learn how to dance between the two. You know, it's interesting because I am a believer that everything happens for a reason. And and through my deep faith, when you see what you just described that happened to you, I mean, what better teacher could there be? You've learned the lessons and you've also had to live the lessons. So I just think it's such a remarkable, quote unquote, coincidence of what happened to you. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I um, I really believe in synchronicity. And um, it's when something goes outside the realm of just the statistical coincidence into like, oh, there's a lesson to be gleaned here. Mm-hmm. And I also feel in so many ways that this was an opportunity, like from the universe to just take a look at what I had learned, and just to push it a step further, um, there was a, a beautiful teacher with a Hindu background in, in America called Ram Dass, mm-hmm. and many people are familiar with him. He was a, a teacher of impermanence and in our interconnection, and later on in his life, he had a debilitating stroke, and he he said there was a moment where it was like, oh, buddy, you think you know everything. Let's just put this on top and see what you have to learn from it. And in the end, he called it his stroke of insight. And, you know, Barbara, we all have that opportunity, no matter what challenge we go through, um, no matter what experience. Like you said, you've learned to look for those synchronicities and to see what positive can come out of it, what good. And that's what I've learned. That's why I do this work. This all came out of a lot of pain. But no matter what we each experience, we have the opportunity to turn it into something good. And then I think it starts by realizing our mortality, that we're not going to be here forever. And we have a limited amount of time to make an impact on this world. I think that's right. And there are even some psychological studies out there that say that taking walks in graveyards and cemeteries can be a tremendous way of putting our priorities and our goals into practice. It is a practice that I myself love so much. I grew up across the street from a beautiful cemetery, and my childhood was spent taking walks there. And I like to think that some of that permeated my consciousness. Mm -hmm. But I agree. I have a brother who passed away when he was 14, and I was born right after his death. And so I, and, and I'm Italian, so really going to a cemetery was just such a normal part of my upbringing because my parents visited my brother's site often. And, and really, I understand what you're saying because that part of life just seems very normal for me. Yeah, I really would recommend it highly. And We have a beautiful cemetery not too far away in New York City called Greenwood, and it's also an arboretum. So there are gorgeous trees growing all around the property. And, um, you know, maybe I should explain a little bit about the word Heartwood, which Mm -hmm. is the title of the book. And, you know, I had discovered after my parents died, and I, I was sort of searching around for some kind of symbol or way for it to make 
some kind of sense. And I was walking through a forest with my husband and I learned that the inside of every tree, um, there's a pillar, a, a strong, durable part of the tree that's prized by woodworkers. And that's called the heartwood. But what's really surprising is that heartwood is dead. It's inert. You know, it no longer participates in the flow of water and nutrients up and down the tree. But for the growth rings to grow around it and for the tree to thrive, it needs that dead core of heartwood. And I think we people are a lot like the trees. You know, your brother, my parents, they form our heartwood. They're part of the strengths that enable us to continue to grow. Barbara, would you share with us a lesson that you learned while writing this book? Something that's a a guiding principle for you every day. So Marissa's journey, um, especially the last year of her life, caused me to really Think about the question, what would you do if you had one year left to live? And I have actually, on several occasions now in my life, gone and taken that on as like a New Year's challenge um, to really go month by month as if I had one year left to live. But even more vital than that sometimes is um, if I'm feeling a little bit stuck in in that quest or journey is to ask, what if this day were the last day of my life or this hour were the last hour of my life? Like, how would I um, spend that time? Like, surely it wouldn't be looking at social media on my phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, being able to take a look and reframe the length of our time, rather than thinking that we have forever, which is sort of a very human thing to do, to really, really narrow it down and to ask ourselves these essential questions. Barbara, I think we can also apply that to all of the little things that aggravate us so much every day. If we said to ourselves, if I had a year to live, would this even matter? And I'm sure the answer is always going to be no. Oh, that is so true. I just learned this morning how to block certain news stories from (laughs) my feed (laughs) because they really, they're just like candy and they weren't allowing me to really look at the essential questions that I want to ask in my life. The book is Heartwood. The Art of Living with the End in Mind. If you'd like to get more information about Barbara and her work, you can visit barbarabecker.com. Barbara, in about 30 seconds, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I would love to leave people with the idea that we can start small. You know, we don't have to think about our mortality in terms of our death. But what about the everyday goodbyes when we say goodbye to somebody in our household who's going off to school or to the store? It's, it's much more palatable sometimes to just start tiny. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. It has really been a pleasure having you on the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and for sharing your wisdom based on the loss of your life. I really applaud you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that leads you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. 
Joining me today is Eileen Lashinsky, a psychotherapist, empath, intuitive healer, and body image specialist. Eileen works primarily with women to support their emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Joan. I'm happy to be here. Eileen, you recently rebranded your business. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and why you made a few changes? I would love that. So, um, you know, I I have been um, feeling into this for quite a while. And I guess the best way I can explain it is that in my life, I have gone through a, uh, a few identity crises. Um, The first one that was really um, important to me was when I had my own marketing and advertising business, and it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't resonating with me anymore. And I kept saying to myself, I can't sell another hot dog. It really felt like I was killing my soul to continue to do something that wasn't resonating with me anymore. So I went for my master's degree in social work from Boston University. And so of late, though, is the second really um, strong and impactful identity crisis. I, five years ago, started to study to be an intuitive healer because I was being called to do that. And the work that I was doing with women, which I love, 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 but the work that I was doing with women uh, and and uh, putting it out there primarily around body image, weight, and eating issues wasn't resonating any longer in and of itself. So I really needed to find something, a way to identify myself with myself, but also with the world uh, that really uh, integrated three main things that I do, I do well, I love to do, and again, primarily with women. So now it's under the overarching umbrella of Eileen Lashinsky, your soft place to land for healing. What you just described to us, I think so many women experience something similar, you know, to a different degree, but so many of us are trying to figure out what our, our next path may be. And and I love that you're teaching us that we can keep rewriting the story. And thank goodness for that, because um, I, you know, I started off many, many years ago thinking that I was going to be um, an English teacher uh, for my whole life. And boy, has my uh, professional, my career path taken many twists and turns And uh, I am a believer. This is what I have always said to myself, Jen. If I am a good person and I can pay my bills, I give myself permission to explore whatever it is that resonates with me that I feel that I want to do that would be of service to the world. And so, you know, this new umbrella, this soft place to land for healing, is a result of all of the things that I have done um, in my life uh, that I really feel are of service to the world. And yes, we women can write our own stories at whatever point in our life we are at. You mentioned that your business now is, is about providing a soft place for women to land. Who could best benefit from your services? I am a believer that anyone could benefit from some form of healing at some point in their lives where they feel they're alone, they're isolated, they're stuck in their pain. I think anyone can benefit, including men. But I think that uh, women go through particular life stage struggles whether it's about what um, women's bodies go through in adolescence or about childbirth and how that changes one's identity or, oh, my goodness, menopause, when so much of our unresolved stuff comes bubbling up to us. And then, of course, and this is where I am in my life as we age and having to deal with 
the changes, um, not the physical changes of menopause per se, but body changes and certain um, limitations because our bodies are getting older. Uh, and so the point being in my saying all of this is that all people, but particularly women, because of the life stage struggles, issues, challenges that we go through can benefit at any time in the lives of women, at any time. Yeah, and I do agree with you, Eileen. We can all use a safe place to land. So if you would like to learn more about Eileen Lashinsky and her work, you can visit EileenLashinsky.com. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was fun, and what a pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back. WNYM Hackensack. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. It's that time of year when people resolve to take better care of themselves. Sometimes we succeed, but more often than not, we fall back into old habits. Joining us today to help us achieve our health and fitness goals is Bryce Henson, CEO of Fit Body Bootcamp. Bryce is a fitness expert, coach, author, and inspirational leader. Welcome, Bryce. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Joan. Really excited to be here today. Bryce, you know by this time of year, we, we start off really strong. And we set all these wonderful goals for ourselves. And, you know, then a few weeks into the year, we just seem to fall back into those old patterns. What is it that you're seeing? What are some of the biggest issues that you see people facing? Yeah, it's a great question. Interesting being in the fitness industry since 2007. It's the prime time of year, the New Year's resolutions. Everyone is excited to kind of you know, be the best version of themselves. And to your point, I think we all get really, really excited and bite off a little bit more than we can chew. So January's goals are really, really big and we're plotting out the whole year, which is important. But then what happens most times is with a lack of accountability and lack of coaching and why you know, uh, I'm a huge believer in coaching. That one-on-one element of accountability is so, so important. And the vast majority of people, they make these goals at the beginning of the year, but they don't seek that coaching or accountability through January. So, Joan, what you just mentioned, by February or March, uh, they've lacked accountability. They haven't seen the results they're looking for, and ultimately they, they, they peter off. So I think the big value that what I've seen over the last 15 years in the industry is actually February and March are our biggest times of year for Fit Body Bootcamp. It's because, you know, clients, they try to do it on themselves. They realize that the challenges, the, the transition, anything, you're, anytime you're starting something new, it can, you know, be challenging. So typically, uh, is, you know, beginning of February is when we see our global clientele put their hand up in the air and say, hey, I tried to do this, but I'm still needing help. And that's the value of coaching and accountability. The, the second thing which I, I see, and you alluded to this uh, earlier, uh, I guess, in the conversation was, um, we look at uh, time very differently, and really when I've seen the most successful fitness clients uh, throughout our brand over the last decade or so, have really condensed time. So instead of planning yearly goals, we operate off 90-day goals, and that's really a philosophy at Fit Body Bootcamp because, you know, there's a fa- famous adage um, out there saying, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. Well, that's the same way on you, uh, how you attack your fitness goals, not one year at a time, but one quarter at a time, one 90-day period at a time. And if you do that, that, what happens is your goals are a bit more attainable. Uh, progress equals motivation. So when you make a little bit of progress, the ending site is not so long. That target is not so far in the future where you can actually see it. And then worst case scenario, Joan, if uh, you get thrown off or life happens or a crisis happens where you take a few weeks or a month off, you don't think to yourself, well, screw it. I just messed up the whole year. You just messed up the whole quarter and you get back on track. So those are a couple things that I see and really uh, the big value for long-term success success in order to be um, healthy and well, uh, to focus on your health and wellness far more than just January, making a long-term sustainable yearly goal. What you just described makes so much sense, Bryce, because I'm the queen of dieting. If there's something that came out there, I've done it. And the weight has gone up and down. And I'm, you know, such a yo-yo dieter that I had to get off that hamster wheel because it's just not good for your health, but it's not good for your emotional health as well. And so chunking it down Mm -hmm. makes so much sense. I think when someone is facing a weight loss situation and they say, my gosh, I have to lose 50 pounds, I have to lose 70 pounds, and you look at that number and you're trying to lose it healthily in a slow manner, 
it, it really is hard to keep that motivation strong. Absolutely. And, and I even use uh, another example. And interestingly enough, I'm a fitness guy. This is my business. This is my mantra, if you will. But I'm also a recovering alcoholic. And it's not the most exciting thing to showcase, but it's the truth. And I just celebrated six years, um, you know, being sober from alcohol. And, you know, when I first embarked on that journey and very candidly I had a few false starts, there was a few times where I tried to stop, but I couldn't. And I was never a daily drinker, um, where, which I thought is typically an alcoholic was. I was the infrequent weekend binge drinker. So I made a few, you know, kind of false starts um, years ago, didn't really stick with it. And I think that the common thing that went through my mind is, wow, Bryce, am I going to do this forever? That just seems insurmountable. But, you know, the old adage uh, stays true. Um, Condense time instead of thinking about it in weeks and months and years. Think about it. Okay, what can we do today? And that's that's another kind of framework, whether it's living sober, whether it's accomplishing a goal, whether it's getting off sugar, uh, whether it's getting your workouts. If you can just condense that time frame, uh, you're going to you know, definitely have a lot more ambition and motivation uh, to stick with the program. And of course, also some more leniency uh, with yourself when you, you fall off the bandwagon so you can get back on. So I love that topic and, you know, just excited to, you know, continue to be able to provide more value so that way people can get really serious about their health and fitness goals and stick with them. Bryce, what happens to us as we age, women in particular, because the things I used to do to lose weight don't work anymore. And sometimes they have the opposite effect. I actually gain weight. So what happens to us physically that can hinder weight loss and keeping it off also? Well, I think there's a couple things. One, lifestyle, uh, and especially as people age and specifically women, but men as well, uh, we're busy. We have, you know, our careers and family and maybe continuing education. And let's face it, it gets harder. Your uh, demands on your time are more stringent. And because of that, it gives you less time to focus on you, you know, your health, your fitness, your wellness, et cetera, especially when you have these additional responsibilities. So I think there's a lot to be said about the lifestyle as well and being very intentional in your lifestyle, designing your goals, you know, creating a, a vision board of what your lifestyle looks like. So that way you can dedicate and prioritize health and fitness in your regiment, assuming that health and fitness is a priority for you. Uh, so that'd be number one. Um, but the second thing that I want to you know, touch on is what happens to us as we age is we, our muscles atrophy. So just naturally part of the aging process, uh, the muscle, you know, breaks down. We have more, uh, less muscle on our muscle, uh, skeletal muscle mass in our body. And what happens there is, um, ultimately your body then begins to gain weight and burn fat on a less of a uh, consistency and frequency, which is important. And specifically, most women don't come to at least our program at Fit Body Bootcamp and say, all right, I want to you know, gain 20, 30, 40 uh, pounds of lean muscle. That's typically not a, a particular goal. And we're not saying that our clients need to do that, but you do need to pr- uh, preserve and maintain lean muscle mass because without it, you're more susceptible to weight gain. With lean muscle mass, you actually burn more calories at a steady state. So you look better, you feel better, um, it helps with your, you know, your weight loss uh, long term because again, your body is burning calories at a steady state if you do strengthen your muscular uh, muscular system. So that is a really, really important aspect of our program at Fit Body Bootcamp. It's not just the cardiovascular training, which is very, very important, but it's also to uh, the skeletal muscle training, the strength training, the resistance training. So that way, we can develop our clients' mind, bodies, and souls through. Um, building lean muscle mass, which will burn calories and make sure that they're fit and uh, for the long haul, which is really uh, an important focus uh, to maintaining weight loss uh, long term. So Bryce, what are your best recommendations for someone that's listening to us right now and wants to start to get on track to lose some weight and get in better shape? What can he or she do to begin that process? Great question. First, you have to visualize it. Um, you need clarity. And I uh, use this in a framework of leadership. It's the first C of leadership. I have an analogy of five particular C's. And the first is clarity. You need to get clear on your goals. And the best way to do that is write them down. Because if you're not clear, if you want to lose weight, well, what does that mean? Maybe you lose a pound. Is that what you're looking for? Or do you want to lose 15 or 20 pounds? Or do you want to lose you know, body fat percentage? Whatever is your goal, you need to get crystal clear on that goal. Because without clarity, you're not going to achieve it. Uh, once you actually, you know, get very clear with your goals and really set that intention, the biggest recommendation is to hire a coach. And it, you know, typically speaking, when you can actually pay for a service, what you're doing is exchanging energy and you're going to get a lot more accountability and support. So typically speaking, this is why the coaching industry is so successful at producing fitness and fat loss because accountability is the name of the game. In fact, I was just reaching, uh, reading a study the other day that if you get an accountability coach, a proper accountability coach, 
puts your 95% increased likelihood of actually sticking with the program. And if you just get a friend as an example, um, you know, you're over 60% likely to continue with the program. So just having someone there holding you accountable that you have to report to is really, really important. Of course, if it can be a paid service, the accountability goes up, but even a friend is really, really important. Um, the last thing would just be start small. And there's a few things even outside the exercise regimen, like sleep and water uh, that are so important. So, you know, a lot of times clients come to us and they're sleeping four or five hours, you know, a day, and then they're trying to work out and they're trying to eat healthy and their body is just holding on to the weight. It's because your body needs to, you know, have the proper time to actually rest and you're resting and your relax relaxation, assuming that you put in the work is actually where your body develops, your skeletal muscle mass grows and you're able to burn more fat. So making sure you get an ample amount of sleep. And the last thing, which is really, really important to starter, and this isn't even talking about putting you're you know creating a, 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 a fitness regimen per se but it's basically just making sure that you increase your hydration um, drinking at least half your body weight in ounces of water is mission critical on a daily basis um, Joan you would never believe so many people are just walking out walking around chronically dehydrated dehydrated which you know causes so much uh, challenges for your organs and your body um, you know just to function a normal normal basis let alone to be optimal additionally what happens is many people over eat because you get the sensation of feeling hungry when in fact that sensation is actually dehydration. So by staying hydrated, now you're going to look good. You're going to feel good. Your skin's going to glow. Um, you're actually going to eat less because you're going to feel more full. So those are just some few strategies right off the gates of getting clear in your goals, hiring an accountability coach or linking up with a partner uh, that can hold you accountable, making sure that you you know invest at least seven to eight, uh, if not eight hours of sleep, and then increasing your hydration for little steps uh, that will actually set yourself up for that way when you do reach out and actually start your program, you're going to increase the probability that you're long-term sustainable with it. And Bryce, what about our kids? Our kids don't move the way we did when we were younger. Their diet is primarily a lot of garbage. How can we help them so that they don't grow older and have all of these health conditions that they're right now on track to be having? What can we as parents be doing to help our kids? Joan, you just hit a chord with me. Holy smokes, we are on the same page. I would say the biggest recommendation is to lead by example. Uh, monkey see, monkey do. Your kids are watching. You can say until you're blue in your face to your children how sh they should exercise and they should move and they should you know, eat well and sleep well. But if you're not doing those same things, well, then guess what? It's falling on deaf ears. And the, the results are actually shown in the data and why I'm so, so passionate about this because at this, this specific time, we're shooting this in 2023, and I haven't even seen an updated obesity metrics uh, ever since you know COVID, but the CDC reported right up until COVID, nearly 50% of the American population was statistically obese. Another 30%, okay, are overweight. So a combined 80% of our adults are statistically obese or overweight, but it's even worse and really kind of alluding to the point that we were just making, 20% of our children are statistically obese, which is the highest it's ever been. And if you take a step back, the reason is, is we live in abundance. Even though our brains are wired for scarcity, the reality of the situation is we live in the most abundant time in the history of humanity. Everything is at our fingertips. You actually have statistically a higher probability of dying by obesity than hunger for the first time in human history. So there's a lot of value there from the, uh, I guess, abundance perspective, but the, the, the disadvantage is as parents, we are not being good role models. As parents, we are not leading enough health, uh, healthy and fitness, fitness lifestyles for our children uh, to lead the example. And it's showing up, obviously, in our own obesity, overweight metrics, but now that our kids are following suit, it's a big, big, big issue that we need to get in front of, and it really starts with just developing good habits ourselves and being good role models for our children. And I think we have to let our kids go out and play. I mean, I see some kids, young children that can't run, and I think to myself, my gosh, this is the prime of your life. If you can't run now, you're not going to be running when you're my age. So I really think we have to let those kids get out and move and ride their bikes and just have some fun and get their body going. Oh, that is so accurate. And it's interesting. There's this dichotomy because, you know, there is a school of thought that's saying, okay, you should not give your kids technology or internet access, et cetera. And that, I'm going to push back there because that is the wave of the future. Your ki kids need to be, you know, uh, fluent in technology. They need to understand how to, you know, work on tablets and, you know, embrace the internet. But that said, 
I do think there's this pendulum that just got swung so far the other way back in the day, 20, 30, 40 years ago. To your point, Joan, you know, you would, as a parent, you let your kid out, you know, and go play with the other kids and run and, you know, play games and sports. And they come, you know, back when the lights went or when the lights went on because the sun went down. That's actually what we need to start getting back to. So I think there's value in both. But really, to your point, encouraging our kids to move, to play, just to be kids again. Uh, holy smokes, when we do that, that's going to be t- we're going to be working towards the solution. And if you would like to learn more about Fit Body Bootcamp or Bryce and his work, you can visit fitbodybootcamp.com or realbrycehenson.com. Bryce, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is your health and fitness is so important. Um, start now. The adage of how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Do one thing that's going to move you towards your goal. Hire a coach. Write down your goals. Get clear on what you want to do. Bryce, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Joan. Really appreciate your time. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Most people devote far too little energy to developing the skill of listening. We have two ears and one mouth. Nature is clearly telling us we should listen twice as much as we talk. It's impossible to find out what someone else thinks if we're doing all the talking. Listening is a key communication and empathy skill. You can learn to be a better and more empathetic listener and elicit greater understanding from a two-way communication process by focusing on the following. Taking time to listen aggressively. Most of us are passive listeners, if we listen at all. Most people spend more time waiting for their turn to speak instead of listening aggressively. Good communication, or the lack of it, affects every personal or professional relationship. And it can also enhance or derail every type of negotiation. Aggressive listening does not mean you focus only on what is being said, but also how things are communicated. How often do you carefully read the feelings and emotions of the other person communicating? Calm and quiet your mind and stop focusing on how you will reply. Instead, really go beyond the sounds and observe the body language and expressions of the sender. Put yourself in their place or position. Study the person you're communicating with and you will discover new insights that will help you better connect, relate, and avoid misunderstandings. To learn more, contact me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit StarOneProfessional.com. Put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done, and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Do you believe that there can be a silver lining from tragedy and that blessings come in disguise? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Your attitude determines how you view a situation and how you move through it. A tragedy is defined as an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress. We understand the meaning of those words. However, I believe that the important component is how we view the situation. What may be a tragedy to one person is nothing more than a bump in the road to another. While we can agree that events such as death, divorce, or job loss create less than desirable circumstances, each can be viewed and handled differently from one person to the next. The key is that person's outlook. There are people who see the glass half full in all situations and others who see it as half empty. We have a choice about how we view what occurs in our life, and that choice determines how we will transition through a tragic experience. So what is the key to getting through a tragedy? First and foremost, we must recognize that we have a choice in the situation. When a tragedy occurs, often we believe that we are a victim of circumstance and that this will be our lot in life. We think that we will never recover. The key to moving on is to know that you have the power to change the situation. No matter how devastating a circumstance, you have the power to get through it. You are not a victim. The choice is yours. After my mother and sister died and my 23-year marriage ended all within a period of six months, I knew I was at a fork in my life. I could go one way and let the loss and pain defeat me. I could be a victim or I could go in a different direction and turn the pain into something positive, something with meaning. It was my choice. 
We all have that choice. Some people create a charity from the loss of a child. Others write books based on their experience, while others make necessary life changes, such as getting sober. Tragedy has the power to transform us, and it provides hidden blessings if we take the time to look for them. I think what is allowable is what you need. Initial hurt, sadness, grief are all normal emotions, and they should be felt. Never suppress your feelings. The problem occurs when you allow yourself to stay stuck, when you assume the role of victim. It's important to get help if you cannot get going by yourself. Read books or seek counsel that can help you get your head in the game. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Isolation can make the situation worse. Seek professional assistance if you're overwhelmed, depressed, or have suicidal thoughts. Remember, you're not alone and that you have a choice. It is absolutely okay to feel scared and lonely. Don't ever let someone make you feel less than because you're grieving or in pain. Everyone heals in their own time. There's no right or wrong way to grieve, and there's no timetable. A true friend would want to know what's going on in your life. It's never too much to tell someone you love that you're in trouble and need help. You should never be ashamed. There are blessings in every situation, but sometimes you have to look harder to find them. When my father was dying from cancer, while it was a horrible experience, it was also a gift because when I took him for treatment every day, I really got to know him. We talked and we laughed and we spent precious time together. I had to look for that gift, but now I treasure it. How we experience our life comes from how we view what we experience. As Dr. Wayne Dyer said, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.